Welcome to This Academic Life, Episode 12. Hi, my name is Lucy Zhang. I'm a professor in mechanical engineering. Hi, I'm Pani Anuel. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Mechanical Engineering. Hi, I am Kim Michelle Lewis, Associate Dean of Research and Professor of Physics. Today, we discuss the myths and realities of an academic administrator. When I told my friends and colleagues that I was taking my first administrative position as an associate chair of the Department of Physics, Applied Physics and Astronomy, they congratulated me and said I would do a great job. Later, when I told them that I was taking a position as an associate dean of research, graduate programs in natural sciences, they said, you're going to the dark side. Well, after one year as an associate chair and three and a half years as an associate dean, let me tell you, I've learned a lot. And my professional skills, including my understanding of university decisions and operations have developed tremendously. Although prior to these positions, I must admit some of the skills I possess to maintain true to who I am and my commitments are really what have kept me from going to the dark side. Today's guest, Dr. Linda Shatler will discuss some of the myths and realities of academic administration, including why faculty think that being an administrator is a dark and mysterious position. Dr. Linda Shatner is the Dean of the College of Engineering and Mathematical Sciences at the University of Vermont. Linda graduated from Cornell University with a Bachelor of Science in Material Science and Engineering and received a PhD in Materials Science and Engineering from the University of Pennsylvania. Her research focuses on the mechanical, optical, and electrical behavior of nanofilled polymer composites. Previously, she spent 22 years as a faculty member at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, and later in her tenure at Rensselaer, she became the Vice Provost and Dean for Undergraduate Education. Before I welcome Dr. Shatler, I want to briefly tell a quick story of my first interaction with her as an administrator, as the Vice Provost and Dean for Undergraduate Education. It was during an undergraduate research symposium at Rensselaer. I walked up to the check-in desk to pick up my badge and there was Linda handing me my badge. I was like, wow, the Vice Provost and Dean for Undergraduate Education is working the check-in desk at the Undergraduate Research Symposium. I thought to myself, what VP does that? I was so impressed because I often got the impression that this is not something that a VP would do, but I loved it. In my mind, it is those activities that ground you in your position. Dr. Shatler, I just want to take this opportunity to say thank you for being there and providing that memorable experience. We welcome you to the show. We are so happy to have you speak to us about your experiences as an academic administrator. Thank you, Kim. It's fun to hear that story. And um, that's, I think, called authentic leadership. You know, you want to be who you are when you're being a leader. You can't be somebody else. <laughs> I would like to start just by getting an idea of how you ended up on this track. So can you tell us a little bit about your academic career and how you ended up in positions of academic administration 
and tell us if it was really a long-term professional plan, if it was thought out. Did you know that this is what you were going to do since kindergarten? Uh, <laughs> give us an idea about that trajectory. Sure. When I was young and less well-informed, I did think I wanted to be a university president. That looked like fun. And I was very motivated. But as I learned more about what a president did, I lost interest, uh, primarily because I learned that they spend a lot of time on fundraising, and that did not look fun to me at the time. So I kind of crossed that off my to-do list, and I, was, I spent many happy years as a faculty member. I really, really love helping students learn and develop professionally, and I also really love the challenge of research. But after about 13 or 14 years in academia, I was looking for a new challenge. Um, I'd been sitting on the University Promotion and Tenure Committee, and I'd learned a huge amount about other colleges through that. But soon after that, I was asked to be a faculty coach for a National Science Foundation advance grant. This meant I was meeting with the women junior faculty in the College of Engineering and was offering mentoring, but I was also finding out what their barriers were, and I would then make a visit to the dean and advocate for change. So, you know, those experiences gave me a small taste of ways you could have broader impact than just as a faculty member. And in either my first or second year as the faculty coach, we got a new dean, and I was reporting out to him about what I had learned and what actions I thought he needed to take. We had a great conversation. He was clearly committed to faculty success. And then he said, why don't you apply to be the associate dean of undergraduate education? And I was floored. I had not thought about it in years, except maybe to be a department chair sometime in the future. But he sat there and he talked about his vision for the college, and I found myself wanting to be part of implementing that vision. So I applied, I got the job, and I kind of had a co-associate dean. We shared an office suite, and we had a blast. We had big impact on the college in many ways, um, you know, really just through daily stuff. But Longer-term impacts, we changed how the advising was happening in the college that became more professional and more centralized. We had made huge changes to the manufacturing facility. So I just found that I was enjoying learning how to have positive leadership impact and improve the education for students and the support for faculty. So I, I, um, I learned a lot through that. And then that dean left and I applied to be the dean but I did not get the job as the dean. In fact, the current dean is one of my best friends and he's the one who got it and we're still very good friends. I instead was asked by the president to take a role as the vice provost of undergraduate education, which I call VUPDU because what a long title, right? So VUPDU is much better. <laughs> and for the first time, I realized the value of fundraising and endowments um, because in that role I had endowed funds, which gives you incredible freedom so I implemented a program that brought, tried to bring back a culture of pedagogical innovation at RPI and to improve our classrooms. And wow, that was fun. Um, it was in partnership with the faculty. Uh, and I can talk more about that later if you want. But that was great. And then it was time to leave RPI. At some point, you realize that if you're going to continue to impact, you need to go try your ideas out at a new place. And so here I am at UVM, and I love it. One of the things I often ask academic administrators is, what is your biggest gratification in this job? That's a great question. 
For me, it's when you've worked in partnership with the faculty or the staff or the students, and you have found a way to improve advising or teaching or research or faculty growth. As I mentioned, one of the things I'm really proud of is the educational collaboratory at RPI. And that was a space for testing new classroom technologies. It had a rotating faculty board that shared best practices. The faculty ran workshops and they helped me figure out seed grants. People could apply and they chose the winners of the seed grants to try implementing new things in the classroom. It sparked creativity on campus. It was done as a team and it was working. And when something like that happens, then it's, you may, it's all worthwhile, right? And I really think those first experiences taught me a huge lesson. And that was that the more the process is shared with faculty and staff for improvement, the better the idea becomes. Because you start with a kernel of an idea and then the faculty who are so smart and creative build on it, add to it. The staff do as well, and they add the practical component to it. And it just becomes a teamwork thing that, that's fun. So I've tried to carry that forward with me. So that, yeah, that's a simple answer, I guess. I could always add more details, but um, that's, a, that's a probably the best example I have. Nice, nice. So you mentioned that in order for these ideas to work and to have the largest impact, you need a team effort, not just your administrative staff, but you need the faculty to be invested and you need the staff, right? So with that being said, why do you think that faculty members believe that moving into administration is considered a dark and mysterious place. Even though you are bringing them in to help develop and promote your ideas, there's still this, this culture of this dark and mysterious position. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I've thought a lot about this, especially since you contacted me. And here's what I think. I think it's probably because as administrators, we don't do a good enough job of conveying the logic and the constraints behind our decisions. And some of that is because we can't, but a lot of it is there's just not enough time in the day for all the decisions to have everybody in the, in the college's input because you're making dozens of decisions every week. So that lack of communication makes it seem like your decisions are not transparent. On the other hand, having been in the role, I know we all do our very best to get some subset of faculty input on any major decision, but it might not be your department. It might be department chairs or a different department because rarely does an administrator make an important decision without input. And the other thing I think is that faculty sometimes, maybe even often, don't know all the details. They don't have that broader perspective. They don't know about the university budget or the admissions or financial aid challenges, et cetera. And that makes it seem that decisions are based on mysterious logic or even nefarious logic because you haven't shared that logic. And it's troubling when you're an administrator and you try to be as open and fair as you can, that the first assumption often, not always, there are of course two sides to this story, there's often an assumption that you're making the decision for the wrong reasons or for bad reasons or for selfish reasons. And I think that actually drives many good and capable people out of administration. And maybe one of the reasons that we lose so many women and BIPOC faculty out of the administrative ranks. So I, I mean, I hope that explains a little better. If I, if I could wish for something, it would be that the faculty member's first instinct would be to send an email and say, can you explain the logic 
for your decision so I can better understand <laughs> as opposed to putting us in that dark and, and nefarious or mysterious side. <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely, I definitely agree. Then, you know, based on that, your inbox is going to go from like a hundred to like, <laughs> to, it's going to triple, right? You know, at UVM, I really have a lot of input from the faculty. They are comfortable and you're right. Sometimes it gets to be a lot, but I would so much prefer that to the other. I'd rather spend the time explaining. I agree. That's a good one. I feel that the faculty members often think that universities are top heavy, right? They'll say, oh, they're so, there they go again, hiring another administrator. Why do we need a VP of blah, 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 blah. Like you said, the title is long and sometimes it's their biggest gripe. No matter what you say, oh, it's the administrator's fault, right? So my question is, what are your thoughts around why there is a need for so many administrators. Can you enlighten us about if you were talking to faculty and they said, you know, why do we need so many administrators? And if you had to give them some insight into why that's the case or just your thoughts surrounding that. Yeah. I mean, if you think about a complex organization, they tend not to operate effectively without some leadership. In some cases that be, can be informal, but at some point you get large enough that it needs to be formal. I think this year is a great example. We had to navigate COVID. Things had to turn on a dime. So without somebody making those tough decisions and interacting with the governors of the states and communicating with the parents and changing the technology, we would not have been as successful. So you need that administrative structure in place to bring the whole picture together and make decisions that are in the best interest of the students and the university as a whole, not for individual units. And most, at least the universities I've been at, the number of administrators to faculty student ratio, that's a really low number compared to the average. So it's certainly not everywhere that universities are top heavy. And I'd be surprised if they're really top heavy anywhere. And the other thing that administrators do is they bridge the student experience between the residential and the academic and make sure we're communicating across those structures. How would you do that if you didn't have some leadership in place? And what about degree clearance? Who would make sure policies and procedures are consistent across the university? So I think if you start to think of examples like that, you recognize why you need administrators the number of them, they can only work 60 hours a week too, right? They can't work 120. So, but I also don't think that administrators could do it without faculty or staff. So I try to look at it as more of a, a teamwork based approach. And I'm not sure that it's always clear what the best ratio is, but it's rare that it's top heavy. I, I, I hope that answers the question. <laughs> But, you know, if you think about it of a, as a division of labor between, you know, faculty control the curriculum, that's the heart of the university, and the administrators are trying to enable that role for the faculty and then the success of the students. Striking that balance is the key. From a faculty point of view, we don't want to constantly jump many hurdles, quote unquote hurdles, to get to a certain place. So if we have so many administrators where in order to get one thing done, we have to get five signatures, then in my point of view, that's too much, right? But if it's something that's necessary, 
obviously be, it cannot be overlooked. So then that role, administration's role, is there for a purpose. Perhaps might never reach a perfect balance, just like life, but I'm sure we're all working towards that. Yeah, I think I want to make a distinction between administration and bureaucracy, right? You could have the same number of administrators and you could do a better job of streamlining processes. So I think it's a matter of are the administrators keeping in mind the most efficient way to enable faculty success? And you're right, you can never get there, but it's a constant conversation. And I think it, it should continue. And perhaps there's a better role for the faculty governance administrative conversation around streamlining of processes instead of just around um, curriculum and promotion and tenure. Linda mentioned that coaching the faculty. I still remember that day we were sitting outside the library and you went over my CV page by page and talking to me about what I needed and what things do you think would help me in terms of going up for uh, tenure and promotion. It made a huge impact. I don't even know if you realize it or not, and I'm sure you had made that impact for many other faculty. Those were fun days. You know, one of the other wonderful things about being in administration is if you can help someone's career take off, that is very gratifying. And you're yeah. a great example of a career that took off. <laughs> there are some realities of being an administrator uh, that faculty in general are not very much aware of. Are there any good or bad things that had surprised you once you took over some of these administrative roles? Yeah, I think the thing that was hardest, and I'm sure Kim has been learning this as well, is the number of laws, policies, procedures that administrators also have to follow. And they're put in place to protect faculty and staff and students. And so sometimes your decisions are constrained by all of that. And it might not be the best choice you wanted to make, but it's the best choice given all those laws and policies. And that is that was a tough reality to face. Um, and you try to explain that logic, but it's not always logical. And you know, laws aren't always logical. <laughs> the other thing that was really surprisingly hard was when your boss asks you to implement something that you don't agree with. And I certainly had several of those. As a leader, it is up to you to still implement it and not to throw your boss under the bus. So you have to, to join arms with, your, with that leader and implement it in the best possible way you can, even if it's not something you particularly agree with. So those were two key things. Um, and then I, I was also surprised at how quickly I was considered an administrator instead of a faculty member because I still consider myself part of the faculty. I teach, I do research, right? Um, not as much as I did before. So that was, that was also a surprise. As a dean, I'm sure you have to say no to a lot of requests at, you know, no to department heads requests or no to faculty requests. When I was at Tulane before coming to RPI, my department chair at the time, who passed away unfortunately a couple years ago, uh, Professor Maribadi, he used to say, he told me that every year I'm being a chair, I make at least one additional enemy. 
because I have to say no to this and to that. Do you experience that at all? Sure, of course, I definitely have to say no sometimes. But when I got to UVM, I said, we want to be the office that says yes as often as we can. And I'm a firm believer that if you work with the faculty in a shared governance way to put in the policies and the guidelines that are fair to everybody, and you do your best to explain the why of those that they don't have a huge amount of input in, and then you try to do your best to equitably implement those, they at least know that you said no based on a policy that was in place or a guideline that had been discussed by the college. And I think you also have to take an accountable leader approach. So I recently had my three-year annual evaluation with the college. They take a survey, they can write letters. There's a lot of input into the provost. And she shared my results, which you know had lots of positive things, but also had some things for me to work on, which you expect, everybody's got things to work on. And what I did was take that to the college and tell them, look, here are the things I realized that you're not happy about what I've been doing. And here's what I'm gonna be trying to do to change that. And if you have other input on how I can change it better, please let me know. So I, I may be making enemies. You can't be a leader for too long without, but I try to, I try really hard to keep those communication channels open so that it's, one of my faculty members recently said, you can disagree without it being disagreeable. And if you can get to that point, then you're not making enemies. You're just having people that you respectfully disagree with. And I'm nowhere near perfect on it, but that's the goal. <laughs> wow, that's, um, yeah. Yeah, and I'll just add one other thing. Um, sometimes when you say no, then you get feedback and you adjust things. And sometimes a no can turn into a yes if the faculty are willing to work with you on something. So I also try to take that approach when their request is something that's really important for their success. So really communications is the key here. You know, now that you're at this position, you mentioned earlier that you still do research and you still teach. How, how does that work? I mean, you, you have only this amount of time in a day. <laughs> how do you keep it up? So I kind of look at, like, look at it the way I do work-life balance. You set some priorities, you set a value system, and you work within that. So I just committed time each week to my research. And I have wonderful collaborators. So we have several meetings a week in those collaborative, collaborative groups. And I just make sure I block out my calendar for that time and block out the calendar time to meet with my students. It's tougher to be a student in my group now because you don't get the attention that you used to get. So I, I try to explain that up front. I often have a postdoc around to help out, but I'm very committed to meeting weekly with my students. And I find that it helps me keep my sanity, if you will, because, you know, there's a lot going on when you're an administrator. And if you can keep in touch with your roots and the intellectual challenges that you loved early in your life, I mean, I still love them. And it just helps me keep perspective on why I'm doing what I'm doing. So, Linda, what are the major skill sets that you believe separate an administrator from a faculty member? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm actually a pretty firm believer that anyone can learn to be a leader. 
it, it probably needs to be at the right time of your career, however. <laughs> uh, but in, in thinking about the skill sets, first, I think you need to be at a point in your career when you're ready to enable others. Now, as faculty, we focus on developing our own careers and enabling students, but not necessarily enabling our fellow faculty. But at some point when your career is strong enough, turning around and enabling others, that's, that's, what, that's what leaders are trying to do. So I think you need to be at that point in your career. Um, I think you need to be willing to make tough decisions. As we talked about earlier, leadership's hard. It means making decisions that will not make everyone happy, no matter what logic you provide. And you try to optimize what's best for students, faculty, staff, the university, but that means somebody is likely to be unhappy and you have to have a tough skin and be willing to take those risks and make the tough decisions because that's how you can make change. And the third thing I was thinking of, and I think this is probably what's missing most, is emotional quotient, EQ. And I don't know if you all have done reading on that. You know, it's like IQ, except it's understanding people's sensitivities, being able to look at a, a situation from someone else's shoes. And no one ever has enough of this on any topic. You know, think about a lot of things that are going on in our country where we all need to have some more EQ. But in addition to these hard decisions you have to make, if you have high EQ, you're at least aware of the impact you're having. And then you can try to communicate whatever you're doing in some sort of empathetic way. So those are the things I thought of as being absolutely fundamental. Certainly there's a style of leadership and being able to give resources as well as responsibility, not micromanaging, you know, lots of things like that. But those were the three I thought were sort of fundamental. Wow, thank you so much. Can you share us a little bit about what are the myths about being an administrator? <laughs> Maybe I've been in administration too long, but um, here are the ones I came up with. <laughs> so one is that administrators are just making decisions to make themselves look good. That's a total myth. I have met very few administrators that don't think of themselves as servant leaders. So that's one. I think that we talked about it a little bit, that there's this myth that we have too many administrators. Certainly at UVM, when we've compared, we are extremely efficient. And I'm sure there are many other universities that are as well. A third one I thought of is that administrators don't like shared governance. Administrators do like shared governance. Without shared governance, we could never get as much done. I mean, it's the faculty who end up putting in the hard work on curriculum and better advising. So it has to be a shared process in order to impact teaching, advising, and research. The other one we already mentioned that you can't do research, of course you can. Uh, my research group is smaller, but I know some administrators that keep it up as strongly as they did when they were just faculty members. And the last one is really important to me. The, the myth is that we're not accessible. Administrators are not accessible especially during this pandemic, but other times as well, nothing makes me happier than when a faculty member pops in to say hello and just talk to me about their day or share some exciting news or bring up a concern. Uh, I think most administrators really love that one-on-one -on -one personal interaction with the faculty, staff, and students. One that comes to mind for me is often they think that I'm not 
a scientist. So as the associate dean of research, for some reason, they think my degree is in something else. <laughs> and so I often, you know, find myself in meetings where, where they'll say, let's not get into the details of quantum computing because I'm sure Dean Lewis don't really want to hear about those things. And I'm like, I'm a physicist. I want to hear about these things. And so one of my mentors said, okay, Kim, here's the way you need to handle this. Every time you go in to lead a meeting, you have to state your credentials. You say your title, you say, I have a PhD in physics. I have this, I have that. And then it sets the tone for the discussion, right? And, and I really fought against that because I just want to say what's on my birth certificate. My name is Kim Michelle Lewis. I'm from New Orleans, Louisiana. I'm a black female. <laughs> I just want it to be that simple, but I realized as an administrator, it, it, it is important to set this tone, but also to be accessible because I don't want to say all of this, these things. And then people feel like, okay, that was very heavy. And now, you know, they're, they're feeling some kind of way. So but I think everything you said hit the nail on the head. Yeah, I think that it's particularly important for female administrators. And maybe that means it's even that much more important for female administrators who are also from the BIPOC community to just remind people of your credentials. And maybe that's not fair, but I think it's smart that you do that. I didn't really think about it, but I guess I sometimes do that too. I say, hey, yeah, I'm a materials engineer. Linda, thank you so much for joining us today. Overall, I hope that we've dispelled some myths and that we've provided some realities. There are so many more topics under this umbrella that we could talk about that you brought up, being a minority, being female, gender stereotypes, all of that. We hope to plan maybe another segment where we kind of talk about some of those things because I think they are important because there are not enough female administrators. That's a, a effort that, you know, I think it deserves a conversation as well. So thank you so much, Linda. We really appreciate you being here. Well, thank you all. And thank you all for doing this podcast. Uh, this has been really fun. And thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this conversation. Find us at thisacademiclife.org or follow us on Facebook. You can listen to our latest episodes on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Music, or Google Podcasts. Please rate us. We welcome any feedback or suggestions for future episodes. Join us next time for the good, the bad, and the ugly of this academic life. <laughs>